Thanks, everybody, for coming. Um, you probably don't realize this, but you are guinea pigs. Um, and I don't mean that you are my comfort animal. Um, <clears throat> but there is comfort in the fact that someone's in the room. Um, this is a new lecture uh, that I was asked to prepare, so it has not been given before. Um, so that's why I say you're my guinea pigs. And uh, I really would appreciate your honest feedback about how you think it went and what you would change um, or modify in any way, shape, or form. Um, so without further ado, uh, here's what we'll attempt to cover today. We'll talk about voltage-gated sodium channels and aspects of their structure and function, uh, detail some of the genetic variants in uh, voltage-gated uh, sodium channels, review some classes of pharmacologic agents that block these channels and compare the mechanisms of action of available anticonvulsants for the treatment of chronic pain disorders. So, how many of you have heard of voltage-gated sodium channels? Good, good. They're very important, as I'm about to remind you of. Um, none of us would be here being able to do anything uh, without them. Um, so keep in fact, uh, keep in mind what we're really talking about is a subgroup of voltage-gated sodium channels uh, that have to do with nociception and pain. Uh, you'll see here the definition of nociception, the detection of actual or threatened tissue damage. Um, you'll recognize this as a subset of the definition of, of pain in general. Remember that nociceptors are specialized primary sensory neurons that innervate target tissues that detect injurious stimuli across extremes of temperature, mechanical pressure, cellular pH, and other irritants in the environment. So they are our warning system. They keep us safe. They let us know when we're getting into trouble. Um, there are ligand-gated ion channels and G-protein-coupled receptors that transduce those different stimuli because there has to be some way for you to know that something is happening and your body does that through a complex electrical process, but first that physical stimuli has to be transduced into that signal so that you know what's going on. And the key factor here is remembering that voltage-gated sodium channels exist in different types, have different profiles that we'll talk a little bit about, uh, but they are what give us the flexibility and the differentiation of neuronal response. So nociceptor synapse in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord where modulation occurs and there's local modulation and there's modulation from higher brain center circuits. This is just that basic pathway. You've seen it a thousand times with that peripheral nociceptor coming up into the spinal cord. <clears throat> The information is relayed up to the brainstem, the thalamus, and the cortical networks. And activation of the nociceptive system creates the perception of pain. So your brain is constructing this as an experience. And you'll see another portion of a definition you recognize. It's defined as an unpleasant sensory experience with both sensory discriminative and affective components. So you know where it is, you can describe it, you can detail it, but then you also associate with that some emotional aspects. It's unpleasant, it's really intolerable, 
you fill in the gaps of that experience. So, voltage-gated sodium channels really determine neuronal excitability. They are that first step of transducing sensory stimuli. They generate the action potential and ultimately lead to neurotransmitter release at the synapse so that the signal keeps propagating upstream until it gets to the brain and allows you to form that experience. <clears throat> they have unique functional roles in pain signaling, are also involved in sensitization of the pain experience, and we'll talk a little bit about how they play a role in certain pain disorders, maybe more so than we realize. <clears throat> they are now targets of pharmacologic treatment. And we'll talk a little bit about what agents are available today, but also what agents might be on the horizon based on what we are learning about these channels, because even though we have known about them for a long time, the field of study of these channels is relatively recent in the sense of really truly understanding their structure and some of their functional characteristics and then how they are modified and moved throughout the nervous system. So there's aspects of their structure and, and how those are modeled out. Um, there are aspects of their electrophysiologic function, um, particularly with different genetic variants. Um, there are attempts to sequence the genes involved in these channels and their variants, thinking about how we might be able to implement therapies that might treat some of these disorders. All right, so this is more of the dense science of these channels, but it's relatively simple if you think about the way the body makes things. Um, the body likes to have things put together in subunits so that it can mix and match and create more heterogeneity or utilize things in different areas of the body by using the same materials but just repurposing them a little bit. The body is incredibly efficient in that way. So, there is a pore-forming alpha subunit. That's the channel that the sodium molecule is gonna go through. There are variants. Nine of those variants are voltage-gated. 0 0.1, 0 0.6, 0 0.7, 0 0.8, 0.9 are primarily in sensory neurons. Some of these channels exist in embryonic tissue and then go silent or disappear. And some emerge as having a role when there is injury or disease present. There is one that is salt sensing alone and non-voltage gated. We won't talk about that today. And this alpha subunit is arranged in four different domains with six transmembrane segments. Segments one through four are the voltage sensor. And they do that by incorporating positively charged amino acids. And so as you think about how proteins are put together, you know they're made of amino acids. Different amino acids, some have charge, some don't. And that gives us this unique function. Um, segments five and six form the actual pore. And there's a selectivity here so that it's sodium that's moving through here, not other ions. And I'll show you a picture of this. There are associated beta subunits. Now, what are these doing? They're, they're basically the support structure. And 
They have an immunoglobulin-like domain, which is going to be important when we talk about therapies. Um, and they modulate the kinetics of the channel. They give us some variability to the profile. How does this particular channel open, close, reactivate itself? Where does it sit in the membrane? Can it be moved around? Uh, because these are all aspects of what happens under certain environmental characteristics or injury, like in the presence of inflammation. <clears throat> so it's hard to show pictures of these, but you'll, you'll get the sense that here are all of these little six domains. Here are the various four domains, um, and they're all interconnected, obviously. And then you can see in a rough attempt to make a three-dimensional picture of this pore here in red and the supporting chains from these different domains. And this is the extracellular side. Down here is the intracellular side. Um, that selectivity filter is sitting here in the middle. And then there's an activation gate here at the bottom, which oftentimes is where many of these drugs work or block so that the channel's inactivated. So they are not all the same, obviously. Um, there are different subtypes of sensory neurons based on these channels. Um, and as I've talked about, they have different aspects of how they open and close, um, how they're expressed in different tissues, how they're modified after being made originally, and then there are the genetic variants that we run into. So remember, this is the neuron we're talking about. Dorsal horn, where the cell body is, spinal cord, the superficial laminae, the different types, the A-beta fibers, the A-delta fibers, the two populations of C fibers. And what you'll notice here is that it's what I told you earlier, one, six, seven, and eight, primarily in myelinated fibers. Um, sometimes they're co-localized in, in, or concentrated in certain areas, sometimes spread more evenly. And then nine shows up in a certain particular subtype of C fiber. But if you think about how all the different channels that are involved in these sensory neurons and how they might be doing slightly different things, you can begin to think about how you can create quite a lot of differentiation here in terms of how these neurons are generating action potentials and under what circumstances. <clears throat> Remember that a sodium channel in a neuron has three voltage-dependent conformational states. They start out closed, where the membrane is hyperpolarized. Then the membrane gets depolarized through a variety of processes. The channel opens, and there's depolarization that occurs so that there's a rapid influx of sodium and a generation of an electrical potential. And that happens in less than a millisecond. And then, as that propagates upstream, the action potential is firing. The channel goes into an inactive state where the pore is blocked and now has to be recycled back to this closed hyperpolarized state. So starting out here, opens, goes inactive, gets recycled. 
And now you can imagine how this might vary, this might vary, this might vary. So there are some channels that open really fast, some open a little bit slower, some are rapidly inactivated, some are not, some are rapidly hyperpolarized, some are not, and as you look at the action potential and its different components, which I'll show you in a minute, you can begin to see how that might play different roles. So, keep in mind the basic electrophysiology here is very simple. A sodium ion, just a tiny positive charge, is passing through that channel into the neuron. That depolarizes the membrane potential and an action potential is generated and sent down that neuron to its end terminal. Very simple, very elegant. And it generates this change in voltage. This is the basic action potential. And now you can begin to see how some of these subtypes are involved in different components of it or very different components of it. So that certain neurons are just taking the basic path. That really is 1.7. This is your kind of basic voltage-gated sodium channel generating a common everyday action potential. But as we'll talk about, um, this embryonic channel can come back into play. Um, the channels 8 and 9 vary the way this action potential shapes up, or it keeps certain neurons available to fire. And certain neurons are more vulnerable or more likely to be involved in repetitive firing, which comes into play in certain illnesses, where there's just never a break in the pain that someone is experiencing. So, what do we know about NAV 1.7? Same structure. So, four voltage-gated sensing transmembrane domains surrounded by a central pore through which sodium ions pass into the neuron. Sodium channel blocking medications obstruct that pore and prevent the influx of sodium and thereby block generation of action potential. So that neuron is taken out of the game. If you take enough neurons out of the game, you don't have much neuronal activity. And this becomes important because in conditions like epilepsy or certain types of chronic pain or neuropathic pain, there's a lot of excessive activity. And we are basically the, just trying to calm that down so that people don't have an ongoing experience of pain. Um, remember that the prototype of a sodium channel blocker is your old friend cocaine, which was initially used as a local anesthetic. may not be your friend, but it is some people's. Um, <laughs> we are in Las Vegas, after all, so. <laughs> all right, what happens if you don't have this channel? Well, you might think that the whole animal would fall apart, um, but remarkably, it doesn't. Um, this is a channel that really is, it must be present for you to have acute pain sensation and it's involved in aspects of sensitization when pain gets ramped up under certain conditions. 
If it's not there, if you create an animal where you knock out the production of a functional NAV 1.7 channel, certain things happen. As you might expect, you can't generate an action potential in peripheral nerves. You don't transmit that action potential to second-order neurons in the spinal cord. And there's not good neurotransmitter release at those presynaptic terminals to keep the signal going. The other thing that's interesting that we'll talk about a little bit later is that there is upregulation of endogenous opioid signaling. And nobody quite understands why that is, but, uh, but it's certainly a, a known finding. Now, as you look at the most common subtypes that have been studied and that are involved in peripheral nerve function, um, these subtypes are almost exclusively in peripheral neurons. Um, interestingly, there's no CNS effects if they are targeted for pharmacologic treatments because they're largely out in the periphery and they're not in the CNS. So this is a hopeful sign because you're thinking to yourself, I may be able to use these compounds without affecting somebody's brain, cognition, causing delirium, other neurologic complications. Um, but remember that this family of channels shows remarkable conservation of various subunits. And so if you block a NAV 1.4 in muscle tissue, guess what happens? <laughs> you can't contract that muscle. And if you block a NAV 1.5, which exists primarily in cardiac tissue, you're going to have an arrhythmia. So those are obviously not good side effects. And trying to target specific subtypes of voltage-gated sodium channels is really complex um, because they are so well conserved. And the different subunits are very similar. And we just don't have the specificity yet in the design of the anticonvulsants that we use to really target individual channels. Um, so these are not necessarily selective. And the goal of designing treatments in the future is really to get to that level of selectivity. So let's talk about a couple of different conditions that exist. Um, one, uh, you, you've all, I'm sure, read about this condition. Has, has anybody ever seen a case of congenital insensitivity to pain? I don't see anybody. One, okay. See, that's about the prevalence in the population. Um, they're not very common, and some actually argue that it should be named congenital indifference to pain, um, because remember how we talked about pain as a perception. And that's really what appears to be affected here. These are individuals who have higher than normal pain thresholds. They have reduced perception of pain after injury. They have relative preservation of other sensory modalities. And due to a genetic variant in NAV 1.7, there is a loss of function of that sodium channel which basically inactivates it. So if you don't have that channel, you can't generate pain, these individuals don't experience pain. Pretty straightforward. What do people think the mechanism of this really comes down to? Clearly the channel's dysfunctional, so it doesn't generate an action potential that has uh, much of a peak current. There's a depolarizing shift in the voltage dependence of activation 
So these are kind of anemic channels to think about. Um, there's a decreased propagation of action potentials that are generated into the central terminal. Um, as a result, you don't get as much neurotransmitter release. And most individuals would say that you need a NAV 1.7 channel functioning in most instances to be able to experience most types of acute pain. Now, here's the opposite. Has anybody seen a case of this? See, one, anybody else? Couple, a few more, because it's a little bit more common. Um, this man on fire syndrome primarily involves the hands and feet. Sometimes you'll see it involving nose and ears. Um, and these are individuals who have the opposite. They feel a searing, excruciating, scalding pain with erythema, usually to mild warmth that improves with cooling, but also can be exacerbated by alcohol, exercise, or standing, things that typically will cause vasodilation in the hands and feet, uh, either to get rid of heat um, or because there's a direct effect uh, dilating those blood vessels. And this is a different genetic variation that is now causing a gain of function as opposed to a loss of function. So it increases the activation of the sodium channel. In contrast to impairing fast inactivation, remember I talked about that closed, open, inactive. Um, and so different profiles or different variations on the theme can cause slightly different presentations in these rare syndromes. And there are people that will have slightly different presentations of this kind of pain or experience paroxysms of pain that people think is due to a slightly different variation. <clears throat> What's happening here? High rates of spontaneous activity in peripheral neurons. There's a hyperpolarizing shift in the voltage dependence of activation so that they really take off when they are activated. There's an increased discharge on slow deep polarization, um, lower threshold for the generation of action potentials, higher frequency repetitive repetitive firing. And interestingly, there is no impairment in fast activation going from open to inactive. And there is no resurgent currents during more rapid hyperpolarization. So in that reactivation arc, oftentimes if that's abnormal or tweaked in a certain way, it happens with such a robust action that you get these little currents generated and they will become involved in activating the neuron again. So you would like to think that if you gave a NAV 1.7 blocker that you might uh, be able to get analgesia for these people. And this is the basic premise by which we give these agents in people with neuropathic pain, hoping to block these channels and calm down different neuropathic conditions. Remember what happens in chronic pain as best we understand it right now is that after some kind of injury or inflammation or disease process affects these nociceptors, they usually become sensitized and their stimulus response function is altered in some way. And so they have spontaneous activity, they have lowered thresholds to thermal and mechanical stimuli, they have an increased response to super threshold stimuli, 
They have after discharges following the removal of stimuli. There's novel mechanosensitivity in what are referred to as silent nociceptors that are mediated by products of inflammation like cytokines and other growth factors that bind to the receptors on these nociceptors. So they are being influenced by the environment that they are sitting in. And when they get phosphorylated or they're moved around or they're altered in other ways, as their genetic products are altered under these conditions of constant firing or inflammation or other injury, again, their kinetics alter so that they become more easily activated and harder to turn off and harder to inhibit from other means. In neuropathic pain, we talk about that as a subset in which there is a lesion or a disease of the nervous system and again, there are these functional changes that occur. Plus, we see that sensitization now move into the CNS. And so, a number of amplifiers seem to come online that also keep stimulating nociceptive pathways. So, once again, you see spontaneous and evoked pains. You see hyperalgesia and allodynia, pain to a painful, a greater pain to a painful stimulus pain to a non-painful stimulus. You see ectopic activity throughout the neuron, changes in transcription, which alter the way in which the subunits are put together to form these channels, and they're moved around, oftentimes increased in number, and their architecture gets reorganized. Uh, so they are not the same channel that they were to begin with. Their structure is different. And at this stage, harder to reverse, which is why you hear people talk about intervene early, intervene aggressively when somebody has acute pain or early pain that you think is going to be neuropathic, like shingles. Because if you get to this stage, it's harder to remodel the neuron back to its normal baseline functional state. And then there's this embryonic channel that I told you about, NAV 1.3, which has this ability to rapidly reprime itself. So that reactivation, hyperpolarization loop, this channel allows that to happen much faster. And as a result, that translates into sustained repetitive firing, particularly in C fibers, and other spontaneous discharges in, in myelinated neurons, which again just keeps the whole system revved up. So what about some of the pharmacologic targets if we want to try to affect these channels in these types of conditions? The outer voltage sensing domains are less well conserved across subtypes. That's where some of the differentiation occurs. And it turns out that Aryl sulfonamides inhibit domain four of the voltage sensor by trapping the channel in an activated conformation and preventing inactivation. So the channel opens, things flow, action potential goes, but if it can't go into that closed state, essentially things kind of peter out and reach an equilibrium, and you don't get the subsequent reactivation or recycling, and so firing decreases. Novel 
aryl sulfonamides may prevent depolarization and generation of that action potential. And they may also block NAV1.2 and NAV1.6, which unfortunately are found in the brain. And so now you start to worry about, well, what kind of neurologic side effects are we going to get if we use these compounds? What are some of the other novel therapies? Remember I told you that some of those beta subunits have immunoglobulin-like domains? So you can create monoclonal antibodies that might target those domains. And as you might imagine, that's been somewhat tough to do. Um, But that's one area that people are looking at to try to be more selective. There are a variety of peptide toxins from things like spiders and other venomous arthropods, scorpions and the like. And they bind to voltage sensing domains. They lock the channel in a closed or inactivated state, so a little bit different. The channel's open, it's inactivated, and it's stuck there. So now it can't be recycled. So that really is like pulling football players out of a game. And your squad is just depleted. Um, Whereas the first, I was just telling you about is more like people staying on the field too long and they just get tired and exhausted and they can't function quite as well. They have greater selectivity. There are peptides that specifically bind NAV1.7 and don't bind those channels in the CNS. And so maybe there's some hope there. So there are a number of complications and complexities to this, as you might imagine, because every time we think we understand the human body and how something works, uh, we start to uncover that, eh, gee, it's a little bit more complicated than us simpletons really thought. Um, So good inhibitors of NAV1.7 should block all types of pain, but in animal studies, they don't and people are trying to figure out why that might be the case. Um, Turns out that NAV1.7 plays a role in sensory pathways that have nothing to do with pain, of course, because the human body takes advantage of these different variations for different functions. So olfactory neurons are required for a sense of smell. If you don't have a functional NAV1.7, you can't smell anything, which does have an effect on quality of life, and also has an effect in animals because they can't find their food. So these animals die by starvation because they can't find anything. They also don't reproduce because they can't find their mate either because they're basing that on pheromones and other senses of smell. Um, Despite their presence in peripheral neurons, Remember, they terminate inside the blood-brain barrier in the CNS. So uh, there's a little bit of leakage, so to speak. And so that presents some problems. The inability of medications to reach these channels may explain their lack of efficacy. We've all had patients that we've treated with these medications, sometimes in pretty substantial doses, and yet you get all kinds of side effects or you get other problems and you get no pain relief, and something's going on. Maybe we can't get the medicine to its site. Um, We try to look at blood levels to see if that's the case, but it only tells us what's in the blood, not what's at the neuron. Um, But there may be other things interfering as well. Um, And of course, this is not 
the only sodium channel for sensing pain. And there are case reports of patients with insensitivity to pain that will experience neuropathic pain in certain situations. For example, after childbirth. So these are not patients that have no ability to experience pain, just different mechanisms. And different things are involved. What are some of the other problems that we see? So, once again, NAV 1.7 may not just be involved in sodium ions movement, but may also have some effect on gene transcription. So you can imagine that that creates some problems. Um, the absence of 1.7 reduces G-protein coupled receptor-mediated signaling via serotonin neurons or receptors in those sensory neurons. The systems are intertwined. The systems are communicating in an intricate dance. In knockout models in animals, I told you before that opioid peptides are upregulated and may be required to produce analgesia if the sodium channel blockers are going to be efficacious. So there are case reports of treating those patients with insensitivity to pain with naloxone. And now they will say, I can detect that unpleasant stimulus. I can feel some pain or some noxious quality that I couldn't before. And if you use one of those toxins I talked about and combine it with subtherapeutic doses of opioids, now you get animal models that show analgesia. So it begins to make us think about whether or not we should be utilizing some of these opioid approaches, agonists or antagonists, to perhaps in combination with other agents, modulate or fine-tune the system. And these are things that we did as psychiatrists back when I was in training as we had SSRIs and tricyclics and MAO inhibitors. We didn't have SNRIs yet, but yet we would, we would try to build them and we would try to combine different things and look for unique pharmacologic actions from the combinations, hoping that we could now treat refractory patients a little bit more effectively. Oops. So just to say a little bit about 1.8 and 1.9, <clears throat> the biophysical properties of NAV 1.8 allow resistance to slow inactivation with cooling. And so there's some, some speculation that these are channels that are more important to animals that live in colder environments. Um, the perception of noxious, noxious cold and mechanical stimulation at low temperatures is, is where they are playing a role. The channel stays open longer and it recovers from inactivation more quickly so that it can maintain its firing. So in cold environments, other animals begin to kind of slow down, and these channels may help animals adapted to those environments kind of keep things going. <clears throat> and these channels remain available to activate when other types have been depolarized and have been inactivated. So they are the reserves on your football team that can help you when times get tough. Um, NAV 1.9, they have ultra-slow kinetics. 
So the idea here is that if, if they're not doing things quite as quickly, maybe they play a specialized role in determining where the threshold for firing is and helping to modulate what ultimately leads to everybody else running on the field to play. Minimal contribution to the amplitude of the action potential itself. They have a depolarizing effect on resting potential, lowering that threshold for firing, and they also will contribute to this repetitive firing. So they're a little bit like the coaches, kind of sending people out on the field saying, you know, come on, you've got to get in the game, we need you. All right. You've made it through the science. Give yourselves a hand. <laughs> um, now let's talk about the treatment, because, of course, that's what we're all really interested in, is you'd like to use something or do something to make a difference for some of our patients. Um, and one of the things that, when we think about sodium channel blockers, we forget that there are other medicines besides anticonvulsants that actually do have an effect on sodium channels. One is just the other ion calcium. There are the antiarrhythmics. There are the local anesthetics. Everybody's new darling. You know, I had to throw this in there for you um, because you got to talk about CBD. Um, and then the main class that we'll talk about, anticonvulsants. Just to remind you about the class one antiarrhythmics. There are three subclasses, 1A, 1B, 1C. You recognize some of the prototypic compounds. If you're a cardiologist or you treat cardiac patients in arrhythmias, maybe you've prescribed these. Um, lidocaine used by anesthesiologists and others for a variety of reasons as a local anesthetic. Um, there was a period of time um, when a number of us prescribed mixilatine to patients with neuropathic pain, trying to find yet another novel compound that could help our refractory patients. Um, and these three classes do different things to the action potential, which are kind of summarized in pictorial form here, described more. I won't take you through all of these elements, but they will delay depolarization, they will shorten the duration of the action potential, um, and sometimes they do uh, the opposite. They prolong that period of time and um, shift it. So all of these ultimately are designed to stabilize an excitable system, and obviously in cardiac tissue to reset a rhythm that is not healthy. So if you're bold, you might be trying some of those things. Um, as a psychiatrist, I often uh, got people excited when I prescribed mixilatine, but um, you know, you gotta shake people up every once in a while. Um, local anesthetic agents. Again, they're inhibiting sodium influx through those channels, just like we've been talking about. Um, they decrease the rate of depolarization and repolarization um, and the receptor site for these is thought to be located on the cytoplasmic or inner portion of the sodium channel, down where that pore exits into the cytoplasm. Um, they bind more readily to sodium channels in an activated state. 
So sodium channels that are open, sodium channels that are hyper-excitable or open more often, they're the ones that become now vulnerable to these medications, blocking them and taking them out of the game or normalizing them. Um, that's why we describe them as having greater effect or more rapid effect in rapidly firing neurons. And again, cocaine and lidocaine uh, are two local anesthetics. So, where does cannabidiol come into? It also promotes the inactivated conformation of these channels. It, it blocks them in the spent state. It has a low affinity for CB1 and CB2 receptors. It may be an antagonist or an inverse agonist of G-protein coupled receptors, a relatively novel mechanism. It acts as a serotonin 5-HT1A receptor partial agonist, and it's an allosteric modulator of mu and delta opioid receptors. So it's doing a bunch of different things. It is not a clean pharmacologic action. Um, and it's something to think about as we study these compounds um, where they might fit in. So what about the anticonvulsants? Same thing. They inhibit excessive neuronal activity. They affect damaged neurons or hyperexcitable neurons more so than normal. They have a variety of mechanisms. We've talked about sodium channels. They also modulate presynaptic calcium channels. They inhibit excitatory amino acid neurotransmission, like glutamate, and they enhance GABA-mediated inhibitory neurotransmission. So a number, there's a lot of heterogeneity in the anticonvulsant class. And if you are only going to pick one class of drugs to treat chronic pain with, just simply because of its variability and the number of options that you would have, you'd pick this class as opposed to antidepressants, opioids, or other things. <clears throat> so the classic anticonvulsants like carbamazepine and dilantin, um, remember carbamazepine has a structure like a tricyclic, but they have lots of different actions like I'm reminding you of. Remember that benzodiazepines are anticonvulsants. They enhance GABA-induced chloride conductance, and the benzodiazepine receptor is part of that GABA-A receptor complex. So what are some of the voltage-gated uh, sodium channel blockers? Well, Depakote is one, valproic acid. Um, it potentiates GABA in addition to blocking sodium channels, and it does through that through a couple of different mechanisms. It probably has other mechanisms as well. So it's doing a bunch of different things. None of these drugs are very simple mechanisms except two, and I'll tell you about those. Lamotrigine also blocks use-dependent sodium channels. It inhibits the neuronal release of glutamate, that excitatory neurotransmitter. <clears throat> it decreases long-term excitatory effects mediated by NMDA receptors. We haven't talked about NMDA receptors, but NMDA is that amplifier that occurs in the synapse of the spinal cord. And so if you can take that amplifier offline, you can normalize the system centrally. Again, there are other aspects of function that lamotrigine does. 
what's something to remember about lamotrigine? It has a very long half-life. Um, and it's important that when you're using it, you remember that because you can make people delirious on lamictal. Um, and it also comes into play when you're titrating people on the front end. And that needs to be a very slow titration, not only so you don't over-medicate somebody, but also it decreases the risk of a Stevens-Johnson syndrome, um, which is much more likely to occur if you're rapidly titrating somebody with lamictal. Now, what about topiramate? This is a drug that went through a heyday in the treatment of migraine a number of years ago and then kind of faded a little bit, um, particularly as internet reports started to refer to it as dopamax as opposed to topamax. Um, but again, think about how these drugs are different. This now works on the non-NMDA receptor, glutamate receptor, canate and AMPA. It's a different amplifier but it's still an amplifier nonetheless. And so as you're thinking about how do you create rational polypharmacy, maybe this enters into the equation or your recipe. It blocks sodium channels, of course, but has effects on calcium channels. It facilitates GABA receptor actions. It's also a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, which is almost a lecture in itself because um, carbonic, uh, carbonic anhydrase inhibitors are a unique little collection of medications, and they do funny things to people. Diamox is another one used to treat people with Meniere's disease. Um, and it possibly modifies, uh, modifies the phosphorylation state in, of channels instead of having a direct action on them. Low protein binding, minimal hepatic metabolism, unchanged renal excretion, few drug interactions, fairly long half-life, make this drug a little easier to use, particularly if you have a lot of other compounds on board or a relatively compromised patient. Lacosamide, this is a functionalized amino acid that enhances that slow inactivation of voltage-gated sodium channels. So they open, and then this kind of speeds up that inactivation segment so that you're decreasing the action potential. Um, so it helps to end the action potential as opposed to inhibiting its initiation. Um, and it also has this, this funny action that people have noticed in animal studies that <clears throat> might prevent abnormal neuronal connections in the brain. And so when people have looked at this in terms of animal models for the development of epilepsy, uh, some people have speculated that maybe this has some role to play in uh, schizophrenia uh, in terms of pruning that exists um, between neuronal structures. 100% um, bioavailable, low plasma protein binding, again, a fairly long half-life, and overall a low potential for drug drug interactions. This is one reason why uh, epilepsy docs like this medication as an add-on. Now, here's one of those medicines I told you has a very straightforward mechanism of action. It is not a sodium channel blocker. So, pregabalin or Lyrica is a calcium channel modulator. It binds a very specific subunit of the calcium channel. It is not a calcium channel blocker, per se. And so, its action is inhibiting 
the release of neurotransmitters as that action potential comes up and the little, little microsomes of neurotransmitter need to fuse with the neuronal membrane and get released, that's a calcium-dependent mechanism. And so that process slows down. Um, its bioavailability is linear as opposed to its counterpart, gabapentin or neurotin, which is the second agent that works in the same way, not a sodium channel blocker. <clears throat> no protein binding, short half-life for Lyrica, no metabolism in the liver, it's excreted through the kidney. So again, easier to use in certain patient populations with certain other agents on board. Decreases this calcium at the presynaptic nerve terminal, decreases the release of those excitatory neurotransmitters, substance P, glutamate, norepinephrine. Despite its name, it has no GABA-related effects. Increases the brain exp expression of L-glutamic acid decarboxylase. That's the enzyme responsible for synthesizing GABA. Similar to gabapentin, but less, uh, which is less potent because of that delayed bioavailability. So the gut transporter for the absorption of neurotin gets easily overwhelmed and saturated, whereas different mechanism for Lyrica. So it takes higher and higher doses to get more and more of the drug absorbed when you're using neurotin in contrast to Lyrica. I'm almost done. So lots of other choices. They all have a variety of different actions. Um, the list goes on and on. What's another reason why the anticonvulsants are so numerous? Because it's a relatively straightforward animal model for epilepsy to test these drugs and bring them to market. And there are lots of patients with epilepsy to do human trials in, and it's a relatively straightforward paradigm. So what do I want to leave you with? Voltage-gated sodium channels are essential to sensory neurons for generating action potentials. This is the basic neurologic fact. They exist in multiple variants with different profiles. There are mutations that alter nociception and the perception of pain. Novel therapies will target specific structures to affect their function. Conventional blockers offer multiple options for treating pain, and you should get more comfortable with using some of these and prescribing them. And a better understanding of these channels will allow us to design more rational polypharmacy regimens for our patients. Thanks very much, guinea pigs. I'll stay, take a few questions if you want. I hope you enjoy the